0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth. You can't handle the truth, where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast. We have a, uh, another special set of classes, actually, that you get to listen to. So it deviates a little bit from our normal podcast uh, format. But, Rob, explain what we have uh, going on for the next few weeks.
1: Yeah, we're uh, leading a study on Zoom in October, November of 2021. So if you are listening to this live, let me know and you can uh, join in. We're talking about what is the kingdom of God? Perhaps no more significant question than maybe secondary to what is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. But if he's Lord, it means he's the king. And what's he the king of? And I think if we understand what the kingdom of God is, it'll really help us in so many different aspects of the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus as Well as answering all kinds of different issues. And so we're really going to begin to explore those questions.
0: Hey Rob, could we say that the kingdom of God is the central message, especially of the gospels?
1: Yeah, I think I think no, the kingdom of God is the central message of the Bible. Okay. Right, from, from Genesis one, he, he God made Adam and Eve to be his image bearers. He made them to be their king, to be the king. A whole idea is about restoring that kingdom because Adam and Eve were kicked out. So yeah. So it's certainly the whole message of the gospels. It's the number one topic of Jesus in the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's also, I think, the central theme of the entire Bible. And you can argue maybe the temple or some other mm-hmm. things, but the temple is what the kingdom is all about. The kingdom is about God's temple presence being amongst us. So
0: Yeah, and probably uh, a very underestimated, under-emphasized uh, topic uh, amongst our Protestant tradition, right? We just don't talk about the kingdom of God. Not, not enough. Yeah, very good. Cool. Well, hey, I hope everyone enjoys this. We'll, you'll be getting these uh, shows along with our regular podcasts uh, for the next few weeks. So I hope you can glean from this and uh, continue to like and subscribe so you can always be updated on uh, what we're releasing. So enjoy this class on the kingdom of God.
1: All right. Welcome to our study. We're looking at the question of the kingdom of God. And for those of you guys that are in the Zoom class, breakout rooms, Leah, you guys were in group one. What What did you come up with? The question is, what's the Bible about?
2: Well, every one of us had a different answer, so good, I, think I should have taken some notes. <laughs> now I have to remember everything. Okay,
1: so um, anybody in her group that wants to speak up and add something to it, go ahead.
2: So. Yeah. Well, I liked what I liked what Bill had to Bill had to say with it too. But we talked about being um, a redemption story. We talked about it like a biology of Jesus. We a talked biography. Okay. That too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would be me all right andrew and paula okay andrew so what did you guys come up with
3: i took notes so
1: very good yeah much better (laughs) leah was in my classes back in high school and she didn't take (laughs) notes back then either
3: so it's a blueprint on how we should live our lives it's the word of god god's love for his creation and his and and redemption of his people history of god's creation a love story
1: and that's what we had excellent okay very good Who's the spokesperson for the last group? That's the easiest way to do it. Carol. Carol.
2: I you know, but I didn't want to be the spokesperson. So.
1: <laughs> That's all right, Carol.
2: We were looking back to what we've already talked about the kingdom of God and the gospel and kind of the whole story. So everybody had a little bit to add
3: good.
1: along
2: those same lines.
1: Helen made a good point about that the, the Bible is about uh, Jesus. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Right. So exactly, if you've been in my classes at all, so you should know answer number one, Jesus, right? You're almost never going to go wrong with that. If a pastor says you're wrong there, they probably need to go back to seminary and figure out. Right. Number two, if you're in a class called the kingdom of God, and a question comes up, that might be a good thing to answer to say the kingdom of God. So I think we could answer it a number of ways. Number one, I like the fact that you guys are thinking of a story a love story, obviously, that thinking of the Bible, a story from beginning to end. So it starts in the garden of Eden. It ends in the garden of Eden and the new Jerusalem. So that, that you see the story and it's a story about redemption. I'm going to suggest that it's about the kingdom of God, but I think you can also point out <laughs> that you can maybe th- main like the temple is like a major theme. Cause what we're going to discuss as we go over the next several weeks is that the kingdom of God is about God dwelling among his people. And that's, that's what the kingdom of God is. That it's where God dwells. And that's his kingdom. And the goal actually is for humanity to dwell in his presence, actually all creation to, to dwell in his presence. So you can make the temple because that's where God dwells, the temple. And uh, we are the temple of God. And so you can make the temple a big theme, but I think a larger theme, the theme of the kingdom of God. So now let's, before we go any further, let's go, let's open to Genesis. This isn't in your notes. So I'm going to look at Genesis three for a second. And I think you may know the story. And if you don't, the story, of course, in Genesis three is that Adam and Eve, Uh, disobey God's command. Uh, They listen to the serpent. They listen to the serpent, and then God gives a curse. In Genesis 3, first curses the serpent in verses 14 and 15. Then he curses the woman in verse 16, and then he curses Adam in verse 17. So looking at verse 15, which is the middle of the curse, somebody want to read Genesis 3 verse 15. I'm out of the NRSV. I will put
3: enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head. You will strike his hill.
1: So you may not be aware, but this is actually is considered to be the first prophetic statement in the Bible. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the, before the gospel, or the first gospel, or the gospel before the gospel. And the gospel before the gospel is that between your seed, the serpent seed, and the seed of the woman, there's going to be this enmity, this strife between the two. And he, he will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Turn to First Samuel which is right before 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 17. It's a famous story that you've probably read before. You know the story at least before. It's the story, story of David and Goliath. And I want you to notice, and I actually just found this out today. I'm like, this. I'm going to share this tonight. It was like really cool. I had never noticed this before. So Goliath is described in verse 4. A champion came out of the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. He was six cubits in a span, and he had a, a bronze helmet. Now what notice... The, how often the word bronze occurs. Verse five, he had a bronze helmet and his clothes was, was scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin sl- slung. Now, if you skip down to verse 38, it says, Saul clothed David with his garments and put on a bronze helmet on his head. Did you see that? So there's the word bronze. Yes. Uh, four times, I think it was, in describing Goliath's armor. Mm. But Saul's armor also had bronze. But you might know the story. David doesn't fit in Saul's armor. He's like this scraggly little kid. So it's like, uh, I can't go out with these, for I've not tested them in verse 39. So David took them off. Now, here's something interesting. Most all Hebrew words are three letters long. What I mean in three consonants. When Hebrew is written, it's not written with vowels. It's only written with consonants. And almost all Hebrew words are three letters long. And then you put different vowels to make different vowel sounds and to make different words. So like the word road in English is R-D, but it could be R-O-D-E, I rode my bike, or R-O-A-D, I, I rode my bike on the road. And you would just know from context which one, which word road to fit in there because it just says R-D. Or because, you know, I rode my red bike. Oh, it's R-E-D. So the Hebrew letters for the word serpent are the same letters for the word bronze. Now notice this also. It says in verse 5, I'll read it again. He was clothed with scale armor. Goliath is being described as a serpent. And how does David destroy Goliath? With a stone on his head. He, to- he chops his head off. That's right. He kills him and then he chops his head off. Is there a slaying of the dragon motif going on? And by the way, there's a There's a six-six-six motif in there also, but I won't. I'll just mention it now, and we'll we'll pick it up another day. Now, turn to Romans 16 for a second. Now, just I want you to see that this just runs through the whole Bible because it's obviously we could talk about Jesus and Satan and all that stuff, and we'll do that later. Romans 16. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. See, this is the end of the book of Romans. I don't know if you've ever seen this before or not, but uh, somebody want to read Romans 16 verse 20.
2: The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.
1: Look at what Paul's saying. He's describing the church's defeat of (laughs) Satan in the context of the seed and the serpent in Genesis 3. You will bruise him on the heel and he will crush your head. What I want you to see is this theme is running throughout the entirety of the Bible. It just continues, continues to go. There's another one now. Go back to Genesis for a second. Genesis 3 again. Genesis 3. Someone one read Genesis 3 verse 17.
3: To Adam he said because you listened to your wife and ate f- fruit from the tree about which I commanded you you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life.
1: The question is who is going to redeem them? from the curse the curses of the ground and in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life know your thorns and thistles will grow for you and you'll, you'll eat the plants but by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread verse 19 until you return to the ground i don't know it's work's going to be difficult from you for, for you because the ground's going to be cursed who's going to redeem humanity you can say from that curse of the ground lord god jesus yeah jesus Turn to Genesis 5 for a second now. And verse five, chapter five is gonna give, give you a genealogy, the descendants of Adam. And the tenth generation from Adam is a man named Noah. And this is in verse 29. And Noah's name means rest. Noah was going to give them rest. And look what verse 29. Anyone want to read Genesis 5:29 says.
3: Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest. From our work and from the toil of the hands arising from the ground which the lord has cursed
1: and in other words if you're reading genesis and you may not know if you're reading genesis and you may not know who's going to redeem us from the from the curse you maybe you don't know the rest of the story you get to genesis 5 you're like noah's going to be the answer noah's going to do it so the first point i want to make is this the kingdom of god we, let's talk about big pitch about the kingdom of god and then we explain what the noah thing is going to have to do with it and the answer is the kingdom of God, this is the first fill in the blank on your notes if you're looking at it. The kingdom of God is where God reigns. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's where God reigns. In one sense, you can say, well, that means the kingdom of God's everywhere. But we kind of know that there's this expelling like of humanity from, from the garden presence of God. So God might reign in the garden, but his goal was to reign over the fullness of the earth. Humanity was created to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and humanity was going to be his image bearers and that's going to be really huge for as we go on as we move on and what they were going to do is they were going to reflect God to the creation in other words humanity was supposed to be the king adam and eve were kings and queens let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air adam and eve were supposed to rule they were supposed to be kings in God's stead representing God the true king to the all of creation they're expelled if the kingdom of God is where God reigns, well, the earth, uh, you know, the creation now is cursed. And you say, well, God's not reigning there, but he's going to reign again. So in other words, the theme in the Bible, and again, you can argue that there's a number of different themes, but I think this one large encompassing theme is the theme of the kingdom of God, that God's going to bring his kingdom back again to the creation, restoring his presence to the creation, or you can say restoring the creation to his presence. How's that going to happen? Well, if Adam and Eve were supposed to be the kings, we all know the answer because we've got this New Testament thing, right? Uh, okay, it's Jesus. He's the king. But if you read the Old Testament, there are many kings who are supposed to come along and fulfill the job, and they just simply don't until Jesus becomes the ultimate king. The first of them would be, well, Noah. Well, uh, you know, technically, it's Cain and Abel's kids. It, it's The kids Cain and Abel, but they don't work because they go off and commit murder and then this this guy named seth he, he's cuz even in Genesis 5 by the way at the beginning of the genealogy that we didn't we didn't read there the 10th generation is noah it says seth is made in the image and likeness of adam there you go seth is being described as this godlike person because he reflects the image of adam who reflects the image of god but seth doesn't work out so the answer is noah but noah doesn't work out because you get to chapter nine, right? And what happens? Uh, Noah's drunk and naked. So as you go through the Old Testament story, this theme of the kingdom of God is going to be abundant everywhere you go. The conflict, as we will expand upon in the next few weeks, uh, between the is the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. And the kingdoms of the world are ruled by whom? Satan. Yeah, I saw Darius' lips moving there. Uh, yeah, she's on mute. Uh, Satan. Satan is the serpent. He's the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He's the serpent in the book of Revelation, right? Revelation 12 describes Satan as a dragon. A dra- it's a serpent-like creature. And so you see that the enemy of God's kingdom has all along been the serpent. So when David is described as destroying Goliath, and Goliath is depicted as a serpent, that's David being the king. Well, David's the king. Yeah, but that didn't work out either because he was flawed too. And the story continues on with character after character after character being the answer, but then not actually being the answer. The second thing is this. The question is, what were the Jews in the first century expecting? You know, one of the questions we can ask is like, well, well, who was Jesus? And if I would ask the question, who was Jesus? We probably would have got a lot of different answers, right? Lord. Well, very good. We established, if you weren't with us in our last study, that the gospel is that Jesus is Lord, and what I'm saying now is is that by Lord we mean He's the King, and that's the point I want to make. Jesus is Lord. What we established in our last study was well, Jesus is Lord is the gospel, and that can sound trite and simplistic because we have to fill Lord with content. And what I said was that is so deep and so rich. We're going to spend the rest of our lives figuring out what that means, and hopefully. He becomes the Lord more and more and more in our lives as we realize, oh, I never gave him lordship of that or I didn't surrender that. You know, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Oh yeah, I kind I of I held on to that. What, whatever it might be. He is Lord and I'm not. He's Lord and Caesar's not. He's Lord and my power's not, my money. That's what the gospel is all about. But the next thing to note that when we say he's Lord, it means he's the coming king. And so if we say, well, hey, you know, who was Jesus? Well, he's the Savior, you know, he's the healer, he's the light of the world. We can come up with all kinds of answers, all all biblically correct. But maybe the best way to ask the question is, is what were the Jewish people of Jesus' day expecting? And the answer is, they were expecting a king. When the Messiah comes, he is going to be the king. And the next fill in the blank is, I think there's two fill in the blanks. They're expecting a king that would redeem them. That's the word, the, the first one. In the blank is redeem. They would redeem them from foreign oppression and restore God's rule. The king would re- redeem them from foreign oppression and restore God's rule. Another way of thinking about it is that Israel. Right. So if you go to the story, so it's going to be Noah. Okay. Oh, Noah didn't work. Then it's going to be Abraham. Abraham is going to be the king. That's the one whom God's going to bless. And then Abraham didn't work out. Well, the the Israelite people become a nation, a kingdom, and Yahweh is their king. Remember how that works? Yahweh's going to be the king. God's going to make a covenant with Moses. Israel becomes a nation under the rule of Moses when Moses releases them or gets them released from Pharaoh. So the story of the Old Testament is a story of the people of God being oppressed by pagan entities, by empires. First it's, first, it's Egypt, and they're birthed out of Egypt. And Moses goes up on a mountain, and he receives a covenant. And that covenant is between a king and his people. So whenever you hear the word covenant, it's an agreement between a king and their, and his people. God's going to be Israel's king. You are going to be my people. And a covenant always has stipulations. You have to do these things, and then I will do these things for you. If you don't do these things, I will do these things for you, and that you won't like. And of course we know the story and that they don't obey and so god says okay i'm gonna i'm gonna do these things for you then and you're not gonna like it and what the, these things are is they're gonna fall under foreign oppression again the assyrians then the babylonians then the persians and the medes and the medes and then the persians and then the greeks and then the romans by the time we get to the new testament it's been 1500 2000 years of foreign oppression under the hands of foreign empires and rome is that empire of which they are oppressed? So that's gonna be a, a really big point. And, and I want to stress this more and more as we proceed further. Because what we do, and let me kind of touch on this, and that is we commonly think that Jesus, his conflict was with religious leaders in Jerusalem, and that they were a conflicts over religious questions. That was we make Jesus coming in a religious guy, saying religious things and being our savior. And we take from that and omit he's coming to be the king and the conflicts he was having were political conflicts because the reality is as soon as he says, I'm the king, that's as political as you're ever going to get. And, right, and we could skip to the end. He's crucified for being what? The king. There's no question. The gospels are clearly describing the crucifixion as he's, he is actually the king. They're mocking him as the king, but the gospel writers are like, but he actually is the king. That's the irony of the gospel. They dress them in purple, uh, 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 prophesy, who hit you? You're, if you're the, and then the sign above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He was crucified for treason. So the thing to be understand actually is the religious leaders, and remember, of course, you might be aware, you can't separate religion and politics and society and economic, that doesn't work in the ancient world. It kind of works in our culture, but it doesn't even work in many other parts of the world, even today. What happened with the religious leaders was, the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus were working for Rome. That's why there was the conflict. It wasn't just a religious conflict. It was a political conflict. Anthony, go ahead.
3: I'm just curious. And I don't know how this speaks into it, or if maybe I'm, I'm, okay. I'm being hyper-spiritual, so I don't, I don't really want to go there. That's not my bent, but when he's at the temple and he's chastising him with, woe to you for this and woe to you for that, he calls them a brood of vipers. Isn't that um, pretty much an, a direct allusion to what you're talking about yes. in terms of a kingdom battle? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Everybody catch that a brood of vipers means this, the children, the offspring of serpents. Yeah. And remember in our last study, for those of you who were with us, I had to go into Satan's house and bind him right. in order to loose the rest of you. It's this, it's a battle between the, de- the devil and that's going to be huge for, yes, um, Helen.
2: So there's a couple of things. With regards to comments, and there's, then there's also the phrase be as sharp as a serpent and as gentle as a dove, which I kind of find interesting if a serpent, yeah. you know, there's... So I'm curious about that. And then the other thought that I had was the fact that the Jews, <coughs> at the time, they didn't um, accept Jesus as the Messiah, right? So how come... I mean, I mean, maybe there are other books that were written about, you know, potential kings that are going to be the one i'm just curious how it all all the writing stopped if they didn't believe that jesus was the one because it finishes with him right there was no more
1: right i'm not exactly sure i got your other question. first thing i'd say is we would never say all the jews didn't believe because obviously some of them did well, the disciples, yeah, exactly, of yeah. them. i just want to make sure we're clear on that um, yeah. and, and i knew that you, that you were also i just want to make sure we have it up the next thing would be we have, so the writings of what we call the Hebrew Bible or what we call the Old Testament or what they call the Tanakh, same thing, come to a climax basically in the, in the Jewish world uh, during the reign of Ezra. Now, we think actually that they weren't, what we have actually was edited even after the time of Ezra, but Ezra is about 400 BC. Mm-hmm. And the point being is you're not going to get any more books added to this collection after the time of Ezra. However, they did have other collections. That's what the Apocrypha is. So if you're familiar with the Catholic Bible, they have 11 of the 14 books of the Apocrypha are in the Catholic Bible. So they also have other books called the Pseudepigrapha, which are pseudo means false, and pigrapha meaning writings. They, they were What they were was they said, well, we want you to accept this, this book as legit, but we can't because it's date, right? like You can't have any books added to the what we call the canon of the, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. You can't have any books added to this after the time of ezra so um, this is the book of enoch e- enoch wrote this book and so we know enoch didn't write that he died in the flood i mean this is the enoch in the book of genesis enoch uh, there's a book called the testament of levi the testament of abraham you have all these books named after these great patriarchs because that's the way to get these books credibility and those books even continued in, into the time of the first century uh, and then after that you have the era of the rabbis and the rabbinical writings but if you're familiar with Judaism, you have the Mishnah and the Talmud that kind of codify all those writings kind of, okay, what do these writings mean? And then the Mishnah becomes like what we might call the Bible, even though it's not really the Bible, but the Mishnah is like the interpretation of the Bible for us today. And that, and once that's codified, there's nothing else that's going to be added to that now other than just other books that are out there, but nothing in this in the religion. So they, the writings d- did continue. If that—that's oh, kind right. of what you're getting at. So maybe I didn't understand your question better than I thought. So okay, so let's go to Ezekiel 37 here for a second. Hey, Rob, yep, please. So I—I I have go. two, two.
3: I don't know. I don't know one's a thought and one's a question. I'm not sure which, okay. but Anyway, okay. it seems to me the essential issue here, or the essence of the issue, is man's nature, meaning his rebellious nature, and you could probably classify it in other ways. But then, and that nature doesn't seem to change over millennia. Correct. And number two is, I have to ask myself, what is the origin of that nature? Now, we're created by God. My first thought is, since I was created by God, we were all created by God, that God actually put that nature inside of us. And so I'm going, okay, I I mean it's a repetitive process so those are my two thoughts okay I don't know really how to crystallize them yep. nor do I know how nor do I know what the answers are but anyway
1: okay so we're gonna cover a little bit of that of, of the quandary that you're talking about. I'll mention it now but we're going to cover it in the, in the next few weeks. But by the way, we could talk about the kingdom of God for about five years. if this is what the yes. Bible is about, guess what we're gonna be doing this for like five years so to do this in five weeks means we're like Really big picture framework. But what Paul talks about is the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Mm. And what he, he doesn't mean the spirit, like don't think of spiritual and physical, he means the life dominated by the flesh, i.e. before the spirit and the life dominated by the spirit, the flesh after the spirit we have, and we still have that conflict, don't we? I know it's, we still struggle with uh, the spirit of God did in me, encouraging me to do this, but then my fleshly nature wants me to do that. And that conflict can be described as the conflict between the kingdoms. Okay. And so if we, if we were to go back to, to, to Eden for a second, we'd say that when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of, of good and evil, what they were saying is, we're going to be the kings. To be the king, for God to be the king means you make the rules and we reflect your kingship and we make you known by submitting to your rule, to your law, to your, discern, to your determination of what right and wrong is. And when they ate of the fruit, the answer was, no, we're going to determine right and wrong for ourselves. And that's that great conflict. And of course, we can, we can say, well, that's a conflict of power. It's a conflict of pleasure. It's a conflict of comfort and all those things that we did on the parable of the sower thing. So you can see how all these things are factors in. And obviously, we can kind of run down all these different streets and avenues in this study if we wanted to. Okay, yeah, yeah excellent. Ezekiel 37, I'm gonna go ahead and read it just to save time. If you were with us what, when we did Ezekiel, what we do that like back in May or June or whatever it was, uh, whatever it was. Here's the great promise in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37 verses 24 through 27, if you're listening online, or, or 34 through 28, I guess I'll say. Uh, my servant David will be king over them. He will have, and they will have one shepherd and they'll walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They shall live on the land I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince. Notice the prince, the king again. Prince forever. And I'll make a covenant of peace with them. There'll be an everlasting covenant with them. And I'll make, and I'll place them and multiply them. Notice the Genesis language, multiply. And we'll set my sanctuary. Notice the temple language. And set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place, temple language. I'll also be with them, and I will be their God, and they'll be my people and then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So you see how that, that's, the, that's what the Israelites were expecting. The question is, what were the Jews expecting? And the answer is, well, they're expecting a David to come along, which is the king. But notice the, the temple language, that he's not going to just be the king. He's going to restore God's rule. And what's God's rule? It's where God's temple presence dwells amongst us. And so obviously that's going to springboard into a lot of different things in the New Testament, but we'll, we'll kind of leave it at that. So the next thing to realize then is you, you have to read the Gospels going, well, well, I spiritualize this because Jesus is coming to be my Savior so I can be saved of my sins and I can go to heaven when I die. That's not what they were looking for. And that's partly true, but they were looking for a king who is going to redeem them from foreign oppression and establish his kingdom. You're like, well, well Jesus didn't do that. And I said, yes, he exactly did that. That's exactly what the Gospels are portraying. And so we need to read the Gospels from the context of he's the coming king. And maybe that's why I chose the Gospel of Luke. So here's what we'll do now. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke for a few minutes, glossing over Luke chapters 1 and 2 and pointing on a couple key, couple key things. And again, if you have questions, obviously, feel free to, to interject. So the Gospel of Luke begins, and I put this out on your notes, and some of you might remember the answer from previous studies. The Gospel of Luke is framed with references to fulfill. That's the fill in the blank. The word is, fill, is fulfill. The Gospel of Luke is framed with references to fulfill. So Luke 1.1 1, 1 says, and as much as uh, many have taken up to, an, uh, to a an account of the things, and my translation says accomplished, but many of your translations say fulfilled. It's, I'm going to give you an account of the things that were fulfilled among us. And then if you go to the end of the Gospel of Luke 24, and if somebody wants to read verses 45 to 47, Luke 24, 45 to 47. So chapter one one begins with, This is what was fulfilled amongst us. And now you go to the end of the gospel, Luke, and here's what you get. Mm -hmm.
2: Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, so it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem.
1: So here you go. Thus, it is written, this is fulfilling what has been written. And you can go earlier in the chapter in 24 and, you know, and see that this theme of fulfillment. So Luke frames this gospel with, hey, I'm telling you what was fulfilled. And then it's like, well, what, what, what was fulfilled then, Luke? You know, what are you getting at? So let's go back to chapters 1 and 2 now. And if you've ever read Genesis, uh, Luke 1 and 2, and you probably have if you've been at church in, in the month of December and done Advent, because if you're preaching on Advent for four weeks, you, you got to be in Luke 1 and 2, because that's really where it, you have Matthew 1 and 2, and you have Luke 1 and 2, and that's it. And so every year, we get sermons out of those two chapters, pretty much, right? Because it's always going to be those... Mark doesn't have the the birth story and John doesn't have the birth story. So you'll notice how how often fulfillment is coming up in in chapters one and two. This was to fulfill this. This will fulfill this, to fulfill this, fulfill this. If you get a chance, read Luke one and two, especially, and even part of three and note the references to, to fulfill. But the thing that's interesting is, is Luke begins his story with the story of John the Baptist and John the Baptist's father, Zacharias and his mother Elizabeth. And Zacharias and Elizabeth, well, she was barren and she couldn't have any children, which reminds you of a lot of Old Testament stories like Abraham. But as you continue on, you realize actually Elizabeth's story is being, or the story of Zacharias and the birth of John the Baptist is being described in terms of the story of Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 2. Now, it's the best parallel for the gospel, Luke chapter one, especially is first Samuel. And first Samuel is describing Samuel. Who's going to be the prophet and Samuel is going to be the prophet who anoints David, the king and John the Baptist, his birth, he's Samuel and Jesus's birth. Next he's David. In other words, the Gospel of Luke is portraying the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus in light of the story of 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, and Samuel and David, and Jesus is the new David. In fact, if you skip to Luke chapter 3, that's why you need to read the first three chapters. It's really the first two, but chapter 3 includes this. Uh, You have a genealogy, and in the genealogy, it starts off in verse 23. It says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. And somebody else was 30 years of age when they became king, and it was David. And we can talk, well, the reason why he was 30 years of age is because the rabbis had this belief that you couldn't be a rabbi unless you are that's true. But the reason why Luke is pointing it out is because David was 30 when he began his reign. Then note that the, the genealogy in Luke chapter three it ends, it goes the reverse order of Matthew's genealogy, and one might be Mary, one might be Joseph, so that might be the reason why the different names in the list, we don't really know. Uh, note that in verse 38, the last list of Jesus' genealogy in Luke 3, verse 38, he's the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is the son of God, meaning Adam was made in God's image, and Jesus is fulfilling That he's the image bearing human. When you go to the garden and and Genesis 1 and 2, in the creation story of Adam and Eve, you have to read them in light of Adam and Eve being kings. They're kings and priests. This is the the context of of the gospel stories of Jesus coming in and being the king, and he's the king of this kingdom. So in Luke, uh, this is the next fill in the blank, then it says, In Luke, the kingdom of God has come in Christ. The kingdom of God has come in Christ. And if you were with us in our last study, we looked at Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. And in the script that I gave you, the notes that I provided you, I talk about Mark 1, 14 and 15, where Jesus comes out and he says, he was proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the kingdom of God's at hand. And the answer is the gospel of God is that the kingdom of God's at hand. the, The way that you would read the Greek of Mark 1, 14 and 15 is to say that what Jesus was saying was the gospel And specifically what he said was the kingdom of God's at hand. That is the gospel. And if the gospel is that I'm Lord, he's saying, I'm the king of that kingdom. So that makes sense, everyone. This is our major theme. This is what's happening. The gospels are portraying Jesus as a king. Now what we have to figure out is, well, okay, what does this kingdom look like? How does it work? And we kind of all know the answer of, oh, we live in the kingdom of God now and we're looking forward to the coming of the kingdom of God, right? We call that the already not yet, that we already are members of the kingdom of God and yet the kingdom of God's not yet fully here because we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. What does it look like in the meantime? What's our role in the meantime? How does all that work? And so we have all these kind of things that kind of flush out more and more. So now if you go to Luke 18 and 19 and I just provided you the notes with this, you're going to see this, great theme of entering into the kingdom of God. I'm just going to read the notes just to save time a little bit. In Luke 18.9 through 19.10, it talks about entrance into the kingdom of God, and it begins by acknowledging your sins. So how do you enter the kingdom of God? Well, you repent. Remember if you were with us in our gospel study last, last time we said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. That's Mark 1 verses 14 and 15. Repent and believe. We must believe in the kingdom, and we must repent because we have to realize, oh, I kind of haven't lived that way. I've I've kind of been living with myself as king or with Caesar as king or with this as king or my family as king, whatever it might be. We all have different kings and we begin by repentance, but it doesn't end there. So the acknowledgement of your sins, trusting in Christ alone, Luke 18, 16, and 17, 37 to 42. And I encourage you to read these when you get time. Confidence in nothing else and no one else. Those who respond are those who come to Jesus, Luke 18, verse 16. Those who follow him, 18, 22, 28, and 43. Those who have faith in him, Luke 18, 42. And those who welcome him, Luke 19, verse 6. And it's a lot deeper than that as we proceed. Now, let me note a couple things about the Gospel of Luke, and then I'll stop unless we have any questions or comments and we want to go a little bit further on any one particular topic. The Gospel of Luke was written by a man named Luke. And Luke is the only non-Jewish author of the Bible, as far as we know. Luke wrote the, the books of Luke and Acts. So actually combined, Luke and Acts, Luke actually wrote more the New Testament than anybody else. Paul wrote more books, 13 or 14, depending on how you count. But Luke wrote more in content because Luke and Acts combined are bigger than all of Paul's letters combined. We owe a lot to this Luke guy but Luke was a Gentile, he's not Jewish. And if you look at Luke chapter one verses one through four, and the same thing in Acts chapter one, he credits a man named Theophilus as the one to whom he is writing. And if you were with us before we talked about that, that Theophilus is probably the one who's financing Luke's writing of the gospel, he's paying for this. And in Luke one verses one through four, He's called the uh, most excellent Theophilus and Theophilus, the word Theophilio means lover of God. So it's probably not his actual name, but he probably became a Christian and he got this nickname because he was known as this lover of God, whether it's a a nickname by his enemies or you're a lover of God in in derision because the Jewish and Christian God was invisible and didn't therefore exist. It it was a a bad name, like the word, oh, you're a Christian. It was a bad thing to be a Christian back then. It was a bad name. And the Christians just embraced it. Or whether it's by the Christians in the community in in Rome. But if he's in Rome, and and I suspect that he is in Rome, because the title Most Excellent Theophilus, and actually it doesn't come from Bill and Ted's Most uh, Excellent Adventure, if that's what you're wondering, that doesn't come from that. Most Excellent is actually a title or a, a way of addressing someone who's a member of we might call it the senatorial class, but it's the equestrian order in Rome. And equestrian order means they were wealthy enough to own horses. And the equestrian order in Rome was not just only the elite, it's the elite from which the Senate came. So to be a member of the Senate, you had to be a member of the equestrian order. And then to be the emperor, you had to be a member of the Senate. So Theophilus is writing in inner sanctum halls of power. Now, Read the Gospel of Luke in light of that. Luke is written to a Roman leader who was one of the 3%. Everybody else in the Roman world was poor. 90% were poor. 7% were like what we might want to call middle class, but they weren't middle class. If they lost their job today, they'd be okay for a few weeks. That made me the 7%. And then you have the 3%. And that's the wealthy who did not work. They owned everything. And they had the military. So you work for them, and Theophilus is probably a member of that class. And then you read the Gospel of Luke of, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's harder for a rich man under the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the needle. What? What would Theophilus be thinking as he's reading this? It's this context of Jesus is the king and the empire of Rome that has Jerusalem under its control also remember herod's the a jewish king kind of jewish and he works for rome and that's what jesus is speaking against and he's but he's proclaiming a different kind of kingdom and it's god's kingdom now one last thought and that's this and that is I, i always say one last thought but it's probably not gonna be the last thought you know me too well that is this is the good news this is this is the gospel and it's the good news and if you don't realize how good the news it is just read Revelation 21 and 22. Ah there'll be no more death or mourning or crying. This is rejoicing. It it's going to be tough before now before then by the way. But this is the good news. And it's especially good news to the poor. Questions, comments, thoughts? Yeah, Leah.
2: Um I'm a little bit confused okay. on um Theophilus financing these writings, but why is he financing a writing that Luke is writing to him?
1: Because someone has to pay Luke to do the job.
2: But isn't he, so he's paying Luke to write a letter to himself?
1: Uh, To write a book for him. It's not a letter. It's it's, it's a, a biography, which is not the right word, but we don't have any other word better. It's a gospel story of Jesus. So what had happened most likely, and we're not certain, I say most likely, what we suspect is that the gospel has made its way to Rome and there's all kinds of stories circulating out there. In fact, Luke even says, I've compiled an account so that you can know what actually is true. And what we understand is the fact that there were all kinds of stories out there and there were snippets, this, like the story here, a the story there. Most of them were oral. Some of them might even have been written. And Theophilus is going, okay, which one's correct? How, how do I know what's right? Now, I think a lot of people could say, well, just show them the gospel of Mark. But Luke is like, yeah, but I've been with Paul long enough that I know that Mark has got the answer. But I want to supplement that by, by really putting this kingdom perspective on it. And Mark has a kingdom perspective. Remember if you were with us in our last study, I said, Mark's written to people who already know the story. And so Mark won't suffice for Theophilus because he doesn't already know that. He doesn't know like what's, what's true, what's not true. So he, he kind of needs to finance. Okay, look, how about if I pay you and then you go do all the research and compile this up. Because it says, I carefully investigated everything from the beginning from those who were eyewitnesses. Luke went and researched this. He didn't just write it. He researched this. And it probably took him a while to travel. I think for, well, there's no question in, in a, a lot of scholars mind, there's no question that he, he, that he interviewed Mary. And Mary might have been in Ephesus with John. She might have been in Judea. We don't know where she was in Nazareth. But then the, he has to go visit Mary. He interviews her. This going to take a long time to, to write in a review and he has to pay his bills every day he, he lives day by day for food so, uh, so somebody has to finance all right somebody else
2: um so maybe theophilus is like just this so wasn't luke one of the in a i mean didn't he know jesus at the no time?
1: no luke is a gentile and if we read the book of acts which there's no question that Luke wrote both. It appears that Luke's first occur, first becomes present in the story, and I think it's Acts 14, when he starts saying we and us. All of a sudden, we and us enters the story with Paul picking Luke up somewhere. He's from Troas, which is the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And Paul probably met him there maybe on an earlier time, and then Paul comes back through there, and, and, and Luke joins him then. And then Luke kind of comes in and out of the Paul story. As you go to the book of Acts, sometimes you'll see we, sometimes it's Paul, uh, first person, sometimes third person. And so we suspect that Luke began traveling around with Paul uh, and became a Christian sometime, obviously, after the Jesus thing, maybe 10, tw- 20 years later. You know, maybe Luke's, not, we don't know, but he might have been converted in 45, 50 AD, something like that. But he's not in Judea, as far as we know. And he probably never knew Jesus personally. That's why, he says, that's why he says, I went to ask those who were eyewitnesses. Right, I'm not that's like
2: it didn't make sense to me yeah. when I was looking at this. like, No, he couldn't have been. But I was reading somewhere that yeah. said he was, and that doesn't make sense. No,
1: no, he was that. not. There's no reason to suspect this. I don't know of anyone that suspects that Luke was an eyewitness of anything at all. So, yep, all right, very good. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, uh, Lisa, very good, by the way. should have mentioned that. Uh, not only is Noah, like, not the savior of Adam, and he, uh, uh, he's supposed to be the king, But what happened with Noah is he's ended up drunk and naked. And back to the Adam and Eve pre-state, but obviously in a fallen way.
0: Well, I was just going to say, you know, Sisera was the enemy of Israel. Uh, Deborah had become the judge. And uh, so Sisera, it almost has that... Or,
1: uh,
0: you know, <laughs> okay. uh, a certain kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. But there's there's another model of where the the evil one is killed in by crushing in the head.
1: Yeah, very good. So these things run through the stories. They all yeah. run through the story. They're you're, the biblical story is always looking for the messianic person. The key is going to be that Adam and Eve were actually supposed to be the kings. So if we think, well, who's the king in this? Well, we all know that the answer is Jesus, but the biblical story actually starts off as Adam and Eve are, and then they get expelled. Okay, that's all right. So then it's Cain and Abel. Oh, they don't. That doesn't work out. Then it's Seth. Oh, that doesn't work. Then it's Noah. uh, Then it's uh, Abraham. And then it's Isaac, then Jacob. And we keep going through the story, trying to find this king. And okay, it's going to come from the tribe of Judah. We know it's Joseph. By the way, if there's any one person in the Old Testament story, it would be Joseph. And it's not him either, but nonetheless, good try it's this consistent thread it's not just jesus is the answer in other words because it's also us it's us through the spirit through jesus just a
2: quick question so right at the very beginning it's adam and eve but after that it's only the guys so what happened to the the other side
1: Ah, because it's actually the seed of eve uh yeah. All right. so so two things to bear in mind number one they become a patriarchal culture so that's why you have this patriarchal domination of the story but actually it's supposed to be the seed of the woman who will crush your head and women don't have seeds so you can see already in the story and i was eve was necessary because the king couldn't come with adam alone in the image of God, he made them male and female. And so they were both in God's image. They were both kings and queens. And that's why I would absolutely affirm, we have to have some kind of understanding that if the kingdom of God's already begun, then male and female have to be equal because that's what the kingdom of God's all about, right? It's not gonna be just something future. We need to impose that or begin to implement that, that's a better word, implement that now.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.